Welcome to Action Stations, a climate emergency podcast where we try to figure out how to mourn global ecological catastrophe and how to take meaningful action. Have you ever been drawn into a compelling podcast and thought afterwards, I wish I had someone to talk this through with? Or have you got to the end of a podcast and thought, I need to go back over this and take some notes? Well, both of these things happened to me last year. My friend, David Benjamin Blower, put together an epic one-hour, 45-minute podcast called Everybody Now. It's a sober call to action. And afterwards, I felt like this is way too important just to listen to once. What should I do? So this podcast is a response. It's got two distinct sections. First, we'll listen together to an excerpt from Everybody Now. Then secondly, we'll reflect on its themes as well as asking ourselves, what should we be doing in response? It is called Action Stations after all. What we're going to do now is listen to a fourth excerpt from Everybody Now, entitled Reenchantment and Reorientation. After that, I'm going to speak with author, environmental activist, and theologian Dr. Ruth Valerio, talking about her work, her passion, and how communities can make a change right now. The poet Zena Kazimi. You bring me a doll and tell me to point to where it hurts. I tell you, I need an atlas. Bring me a globe. I place my fingertip on the northernmost point and let it spin before me and watch grand mountains and dying oceans and pillaged forests and lifetimes pass before my eyes and wonder how I would rearrange it if the earth was just a small sphere in my hand. I'd fill in the disappearing coral reef with the colors the world is so ready to forget. I'd dip both hands into the oceans of time and carry back home the extinct species to the seas. I'd take the water from the melting ice caps in buckets to the barren deserts, move the unsung clouds from our gray skies to drought-stricken lands and fill the hands of farmers extended in prayer with the rain we so readily complain about. I'd move the bulldozers out of the rainforests so that the trees will not be disturbed in their prostration to their Lord and take them instead to the separation wall in the West Bank in Palestine. I'd bring watercolors the calmest blue, the brightest yellow, to paint over the black blanket of pollution shrouding continents in eternal darkness, hanging over factories where little hands stitch their childhood into the hem of our skirts, watching their lives pass by in the reflection in the small intricate mirror work on our dresses. When I have finished, I'll run my finger along the borders erase the sketch marks of the colonizers until the globe is no longer a map, until the word map is erased from history and the earth returns to just being God's canvas, ready to be adorned by tomorrow's hands. I'm Rowan Williams, the Master of Magdalen College in Cambridge. I first woke up to some of the environmental crisis in my 20s I was that generation that, uh, I suppose, picked up from Rachel Carson and then from Schumacher. Those early voices, the first 
uh, Swallows of the Summer, if you like, who were talking about the devastation that we were creating. And it clicked for me very, very strongly with some of the, the work I was doing as a theologian at the time. I was working on Eastern Christianity, which has a very powerful sense of how the natural world carries the energy of the divine and how that, that teaches us a kind of um, veneration of the material environment we're in. It's easy enough to construct a, a story about Western civilization where at some point everything goes completely wrong. It's never as simple as that. But there is a watershed moment somewhere in the 16th, 17th century where you can actually see somehow the gulf between mind or spirit and body has opened that bit wider. And the sheer resourcefulness of the human mind in exploring the material world draws people into this myth of the active mind and the passive world. Here am I, the maker, the questioner, the inventor, famously in the image that Francis Bacon uses right at the start of the scientific revolution. I put nature on the rack. I torture nature to make her give up her secrets. It's a very powerful image and a very telling one, not least in its gendered nature. I put the female body of nature there where I can probe and intrude and impose. And that male dominating head not heart, mind not body, that's a, a strong myth in Western society. And it dies hard. You'll still have people, a very distinguished American philosopher saying, at the end of the day, there is just stuff. And what he means by there is just stuff is actually there is just stuff, plus people like me who write books of philosophy about it. And what we lose in that is the sense of involvement in, interdependence with the world wherein we treat that world out there as something we're not part of. And there is that moment, as I say, in the 16th, 17th century, where the gulf really starts opening up. If you look at the history of science in the 17th century, there's a sort of battle going on under the surface between people who still hold to a more mythological, mystical, participatory, even magical view, whether it's in the poetry of Thomas Traherne or actually in some of the, the philosophers who start the Royal Society. Um, they're not all um, Francis Bacon types were very conscious of the immense complexity of factors and energies flowing together in the world and are still not quite sure whether they're scientists or magicians. And then you have the people like Francis Bacon for whom, no, it's simple, it's, it's out there, it's dead, just carve it up and label it. The carving up and labeling tends to win over a couple of centuries that follow and then very, very slowly it's as if we're steering back towards a deeper sense of interaction and involvement. And so many powerful scientific minds of the last few decades have moved in that direction. People who say, well, let's face it, the world seems to be intelligent in a way we, we've never really reckoned with. The world exchanges information in a creative way. That's 
what the material world is. It's bigger than we thought. I think Wendell Berry said something like, there are no unsacred places, there are just sacred places and desecrated places. And we look at what we're doing to the earth and how we're trashing her and trashing ourselves. It's a deep separation from our own inherent sense of purpose and love and our connection to our ancestors and the next generations to come after us. I don't think that change comes driven by the intellect. The intellect has its place in terms of planning things and understanding you know, tactics and things like that. So it's definitely got its role, but ultimately it has to be rooted in the heart. And I think that if you, a word like sacred is something that can speak to people to say that this is something of deep meaning that we're doing together. The Reverend John Swales. So I've been brought up sort of res respecting uh, creation. You know, I've filled in on online petitions, noticed a bit of Greenpeace stuff and whatever, but really just going about my life, just a general level of awareness. Then about eight months ago, um, a couple of things happened. One, my daughter went on one of the youth strikes, so I just got interested in the the climate stuff, but at the same time I was preparing a series of talks on the Book of Revelations, a series of sermons. Notice that in that central part of the Book of Revelation it talks about uh, famines, it talks about wars, um, and I just started noticing parallels between what Revelation was talking about and the climate discussion. So during that time of sermon prepping I got into uh, climate science, reading reports, reading a number of books, listening to podcasts. And I started to see that my general awareness of greenhouse gases uh, and that we may have a problem at some point was, was misguided. It wasn't enough that this is an emergency situation that very likely uh, within my lifetime almost definitely, well, definitely within the lifetime of my kids. We are, unless something drastically changes, we're going to see a world of mass starvation, global migration and societal collapse. And quite frankly, that terrified me, it disturbed me. Um, my peers and colleagues weren't talking about this. And so, well, I must be wrong, so let's do more research. Let's listen to more stuff. Let's see what's out there. Let's get a mainstream view. And actually, the more I researched into it, the more I, I realised, yes, there's variety. There's, a, there's different opinions in the scientific community, but the consensus is unless we change things drastically, the future looks tragic. IPCC report, they say we've got another 10 years, really, to sort of really get a grip of decarbonising radically or that the future is one which will be uh, really incompatible with um, with human existence but the UN Secretary General last year he said we've got two years to do something drastic yes there's differing opinions there but both of them are are saying this is an emergency situation So I preached my series on the book of uh, Revelation um, and I noticed the parallels. 
that in this beastly forces at work today, the unholy trinity of unrestrained capitalism, of consumerism and individualism. I'm complicit with their power and force. And now my eyes are open. And as I look at the climate science, as we try and predict the future, um, well, all hell in one sense is breaking out. You know, uh, climate change is a threat multiplier. We will see more wars. We will see more famines. We will see more disease. We'll see more uh, refugees. All hell is beginning to break out. But what we see now in, it, in the Western world in a, uh, in a shadowy way, we will quite soon see in technical. Um, and I think what we'll see in the coming uh, coming years is people waking up and grieving for a future which will no longer be. Actually, after um, preaching this series on Revelation, I fell ill uh, with a chest infection. And for about eight weeks, I was really laid up in bed, antibiotics not wor working, staying awake at night, um, crying. I put my kids to bed and I'd be crying for a future which will no longer be in a place of grief and lament. Um, at that time, st struggling to pray, but that changed and developed into a really prophetic calling of speaking truth to power. So I feel that as an uncomfortable calling, uncomfortable calling to uh, speak out on these issues with as much clarity as, as, as I can. I would probably say that grief is still there. So an example would be this morning, I woke up and about half an hour of getting up, you know, having a coffee, suddenly it, it, it sort of kicks in. You know, I'm reminded of that normal life nowadays takes place in the context of this catastrophe which is unfolding. But grief can be a process. And for myself, I've been able to move from grief, which is almost like denial, then paralysis, to then being able to move forward with some level of, uh, of hope. If, or to go with Brueggemann, I was in a place of orientation. My, my world makes sense. Uh, I understand the climate science, I'm grieving. I'm in a place of disorientation. I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what the world is anymore. My worldview is, 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 is collapsing and changing around me. But now I'm in a place of reorientation. So I'm not back at the beginning. I have grieved and I grieve and there's, there is some despair in that, but actually I've moved into another place where I reorientate my, uh, my worldview, which means that, um, I can actually get out of bed and do things. And part of that would be leaning into lament, but then also leaning into the activism. My hope is that I'm more present in the present. I thought I could dictate and control the future. You know, just in the sense of that's how I imagine things. I can't. In the present, I can I can really be there. So I'm trying to notice more. I'm trying to appreciate the earth better. I'm trying to appreciate things like laughter. 
joy, just family dynamics, and that life is a life is a gift. I think that's breaking into the present. I can have a glimpse and a foretaste of of what I, I still hope deep down will one day be of the restoration of all things and all tears wiped away. Thank you very much, Dr. Ruth Valerio, for joining us uh, on Action Stations. Can you tell us a little bit about your role in Tear Fund? Yeah, so hi, Joel. It's great to be with you. And hello to anyone listening. Thank you for, for joining us. So I work as one of the directors at Tear Fund. I have the slightly crazy title of Global Advocacy and Influencing Director, which possibly makes you sound like the Pope, I'm not sure. But it's all around helping the church to understand integral mission, uh, working, helping the church around the world. As Tear Fund, we work in about 50 countries, working in some of the poorest communities in the world. And we very much work alongside churches and church denominations. So part of the work of my teams, the kind of influencing side, if you like, is around integral mission and helping churches to understand that part of the gospel is responding to people's physical and poverty needs. And then advocacy is around calling on governments and businesses and global corporations to put in place the changes that we need in order to, in order to see the big systemic change. So it's a really exciting group. We work alongside our programmatic work. That's the work just that's on the ground doing that everyday poverty relief stuff. And we work alongside them, supporting them, helping them with advocacy um, and also with that theological basis mm. for the churches that we work with. Amazing. Can, can you tell me a little bit about your first uh, moment of ecological activism or advocacy can you can you think about when when did the journey start for you the journey started in a more kind of headspace type way so I was at university reading theology and someone lent me a little book called whose earth that was a very simple I don't think it's in print anymore but it's a very simple look at what does the bible say about caring for the environment um, and that really just opened my my mind to a whole area of my faith and to a to a whole way of seeing the bible that i had never seen before and so i came to a very i mean it was almost like a second conversion like the scales fell from my eyes i suddenly wow. realized this was something that that i needed to get a hold of that if this world was made by God and loved by God and belongs to God, then if there are problems in it, then that actually is something that as someone who follows and worships God, I need to be concerned about and yeah. care about. So that changed my understanding. And then I quickly came to see that this wasn't just a, a new a, a sort of a, 
a fresh understanding of the Bible that if it meant anything, I had to live it out in practice. So I started think, looking at the way that I lived. I, it became obvious to me that some of the problems that we were seeing were as a result of how we were living. So I started looking at the way that I live and how I could change some things with that. And then those bigger things that need governments and businesses to take action. So then I started getting involved in campaigning as well. And actually, funnily enough, all those years ago, Tear Fund was one of the organisations I got involved with. Uh, and they helped me channel my enthusiasm and gave me some campaigning things that I could do and, you know, a group of people to get involved with. Mm. And similarly with a group called Arosha, where I found a lot of kindred spirits as well. So it grew from my, my faith understanding, which then needed to be worked out in practice. Mm. Wow. That's great. I'm glad it was beautiful that it was a book. And, and I mean, you yourself have got a little, a, you know, group of books that, uh, you know, hopefully there's going to be other people picking those books up and starting their journey. There's, there's a term that was used in, in the Everybody Now podcast, which was re-enchantment. Mm. And I, uh, I would see that as a kind of returning to a sense of wonder and humility. I think when you're enchanted by something, you're kind of humbled by it, aren't you? Um, <laughs> I think it's about creating a, a fresh relationship between us and the natural world. So which people in the public eye do you think are doing a good job at kind of helping us get that sense of re-enchantment uh, with the natural world? Um, I think the the spring watch crew spring watch autumn watch yeah. whichever i think they are they are brilliant at just opening our eyes up to the wonder of the natural world that is around us this isn't about you know some incredible exotic wildlife program that takes us to the other side of the world as wonderful as those are too and goodness we all enjoy those but this is just about seeing the birds that many of us might have in our gardens or visiting mm. our balconies or the flowers in the city park or you know so I think they are so good at helping us connect um, Steve Backshall I and mean, he's one of the presenters but Steve Backshall has been brilliant as well he's been really instrumental in with my daughters. Yeah, my, uh, mine too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's amazing because you've got younger daughters. You know, mine, mine are uh, older and they've kind of grown up with Steve Batchel and he has inspired in them a love of animals and of wildlife and the natural world. I mean, David Attenborough, you know, is obvious, but I think it's those people actually who, yeah, just really inspire that in us. And we can make such a difference if we lift up our fences a bit and to allow the hedgehogs through and plant things that will attract the bees and the butterflies, have a little pond, doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, all of those things will really help. Your books have this feeling of hope and life. There's not like crisis imagery. They don't have these titles which are alarmist. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's on, on purpose. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, and funnily enough, so I've written a few books 
and totally not deliberately I realize that apart from the children's book they all have the theme of life or living or lifestyle or something in the title so it must definitely be a theme for me because none of that was was intended one that's been quite a bestseller called L is for lifestyle Christian living that doesn't cost the earth and that is a really practical look that helps us think, okay, what are the things that we can actually do? Um, I wrote the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book a couple of years ago. So I've written, got quite, and some other books as well. So quite, quite a lot for adults. And people had, had often said to me, oh, you should write something for children. Particularly L is for lifestyle would translate well into a children's book. And, you know, I'm not a children's writer and I didn't think that was... That, that was a skill set that was mine. And then it came back to me during the pandemic, during the first lockdown. I thought, oh, this could be a lockdown project <laughs> for me. Uh, but again, I'm not a children's writer. So I contacted a good friend of mine called Paul Carenza, who's a comedian and a BBC script writer. He's just absolutely brilliant. And said, do you want to work on something with me? So we co-wrote it and um, I gave him most of the material, though some of it was his too, but we, I, I gave him the material and then he wrote it into a primary school aged book. And it's just brilliant. It's called Planet Protectors, 52 Ways to Look After God's World. And Paul brings his quirkiness and fun uh, to it, as well as it being challenging and it's fully illustrated throughout. Um, so it's possibly my favourite book. I think it's great. And Paul just did such a good job. Excellent. When you're communicating to people that you, you've never met before, what, what percentage of your communication is talking about the stark realities of crisis and what percentage is like presenting and here's the hope? Mm. Uh, I've spent a lot of the last 30 years or so with the basic message of there is a crisis coming. If we don't take action, this is what is going to happen. Um, and going through that in quite some detail, giving some biblical material as to why this is something Christians should be concerned with, and then moving on to how we can act. I realised a little while ago that all of those predictions that I'd been talking about for so long uh, were reality. We were seeing increasing numbers of people being pushed back into poverty, species going extinct, increasing wildfires, uh, extreme weather events, coral bleaching, uh, you know, all of those things, droughts, floods, crop failure, the kind of thing that Tear Fund sees every day, all of those things, uh, I just realised we're past, we're, we're in the crisis. So I'm now looking more at, okay, we are in a crisis. How then as Christians can we keep living and keep acting and keep responding with faithfulness and with hope and with courage and with resilience. So I'm now more looking at different tools that we can have in order to help us keep responding. Because the danger is that you look at all these crises and you either throw your hands up in the air and curl up under a duvet for yeah. the rest of your life, yeah. or you say, well, we're in a crisis, so there's no point doing anything about it. But it really does still count. You know, every fraction of a degree matters. The action that we take today, even if we didn't take the action we should have taken yesterday, the action that we take today will still impact tomorrow. 
So it is all still to play for. So we haven't got the luxury of curling up under a duvet or saying, I'm not going to bother. We need to take action. So how do we do that? So I think a lot more of my focus is on that kind of messaging now. It seems like such a difficult balance because my last guest was a, a friend, Damien, who was at COP26 and he just talked about this weird thing of like people wanting to take responsibility and mm -hmm. yet at the same time seeing that there's these big corporate entities that are saying, hey, you guys all, everyone has to take responsibility when when they themselves are, are uh, you know, contribute so significantly mm. to the problem sometimes i sort of see arguments between people saying you know we shouldn't bother with the lifestyle thing it's the big systemic change that's important and others saying no we've got to focus you know on what everybody the individual can do uh, we have to have both i mean it's so obvious the lifestyle side isn't enough for sure we have to be pushing governments and businesses to be putting into place policies and practices that take care of the world and look after the world's poor. So we have to be pushing for that. At the same time, they're not going to do that if we're carry on, carrying on living in the way that they want us to live. We have to demonstrate that we want to live differently. And we do have power in our purses, in our wallets. And the other thing is, for me as a Christian, whether or not it makes any difference, it's part of my discipleship and it's part of my worship. I look in the Bible and I see a God of justice, a God who cares for the, the orphan and the stranger and the widow and the person who's oppressed and, and calls us to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and to satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And I see a God who created this world and has placed us in it in order to look after it. It's my joy and my privilege to want to live in these particular ways just out of my discipleship and my worship. Well, I, I appreciate yourself and, and like one of my heroes, uh, Alistair McIntosh, for showing this kind of integrated way of seeing things, that, that taking care of the planet is taking care of other people. It's in your job title and it's in your, in your, your work as well with Tear Fund. It's not an aside um, in taking yeah. care of humans, you're taking care of the planet and vice versa. Absolutely. Um, environmental issues and people, social issues are completely linked. And the reality is the environmental problems always hit the poorest people the most. And that's not only on a global level, that will be in the UK too. It'll be in your community, in your city, wherever you are, it will be the poorest people who are suffering the most, whether it's from pollution or food deserts or whatever it's from, environmental problems hit the poorest the most. So you can't care for people without thinking about the air they breathe and the land they live on and the seas they fish in. And you can't care for those things without thinking about the people that inhabit those spaces and, and that cause damage, whether through absolute poverty or more likely through absolute wealth. In, in the last five years, what would you say would, what's been the most encouraging development 
uh, in terms of earth care, ecological action, um, things that you have yourself have found uh, have given you courage? Gosh, so much. One of my privileges of being with Tear Fund is that I see alongside the challenges, I see so many stories of hope that we're alongside supporting communities that are investing in sustainable agriculture or renewable energy or waste management. There's so much good stuff that is happening. This might be a bit obvious, but seeing the waking up and the rising up of young people over the last five years has been amazing. Uh, and it isn't something that we've seen before that in to any large degree. I went with my youngest daughter to one of the Friday marches, school strikes, took her out of school, was very happy to do so, and took her to London. Not, you know, we went together. I wanted to support her in that. And uh, she got, she hated it because I cried all the way around. <laughs> Just seeing all these young people, I was like, this is, this is what I've been waiting for. Amazing. <laughs> young people to get up and to see it and to stand yeah. up and make voices heard. And it was, that, that was just amazing. Uh, the key will be keeping that momentum going. And, and that always is, is the challenge. So I just pray that those that young people have good people around them and can help them to keep going. That seems like such an important thing amongst so many activists is that resilience and that sense of community. There's that mutual encouragement and that mutual cheerleading to keep going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is, and that's one of my tools in my kind of toolkit that I'm talking about now is community because it is so much better to do these things with other people, whether that's physically or if we don't have people around us, there are online communities. Tear Fund has a Facebook, Tear Fund, something like Tear Fund Campaigners Facebook page yeah, that people can, where they can meet other people who are active. But these, these things can be hard to do on your own. And yeah. so joining in with others and being part of a community can really help. Yeah. Do you think the Extinction Rebellion has helped in one particular area, which is mourning? They've, they've, they're, very, they're very good at creating spaces for people to mourn. And, and I think the thing that Rowan Williams has talked about is this idea that grief is a really important process because it's it's about genuinely processing stuff so you have a future. So what, what have you witnessed in terms of useful lament and grief of what has already been lost? Yeah, just to say, I do think that is really important that we don't rush to hope too quickly, but we do allow ourselves actually to look full face at the horror of what of what is around us and of what we're causing and to lament that and to grieve it and to repent uh, and to allow ourselves to have that space. Actually, the, the Christian wing of Extinction Rebellion, Christian Climate Action, have really good resources around that. They, there's a, a book that they wrote called Time to Act and that has some good good resources in there so I'd point people to that but I think having that time to acknowledge to acknowledge how we feel and to acknowledge in terms of our repentance for our part in this is important so thank you for mentioning it 
And I'd like to just ask one more question, and that is going back to that sense of community. Can you just give us one thing as communities of churches, perhaps, that you, when you are talking to local churches, what is it one thing that a local church can do? Well, there are so many things, but I would bring all of that together and say that actually the best thing a church can do would be to sign up to Eco Church, to the Eco Church scheme, because there you get all of the resources and the help that you need. And it brings you in, into a community. There's, I think, over, now over 4,000 churches that are part of Eco Church. And so you join that community and you can get all of the, the help and the, the resources and the, the support. That's the word I'm looking for. The support and the encouragement by being part of that. So join Eco Church and then everything else will follow. Amazing. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for speaking and sharing and fighting and giving people a vision as well for, for a different world. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure and <laughs> really good to chat with you today. Oh, I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Ruth. She's so down to earth. She doesn't at all downplay the stark realities. But at the same time, she's just filled with so much hope and some great stories and I'm so glad she's written all these books. There is going to be lots of links to to her work and and her book so yeah just look look out for those uh, but this has been a really inspiring conversation i hope you found that as inspiring as i did if you're feeling inspired make a little action plan we've actually provided a downloadable printable eco action plan in the description it doesn't matter how old or young you are we can all do something practical. In the description, there's also a link to an Earth Day bingo chart with actions that might help you with your action plan. So, action stations, everybody. Let's reconvene soon. Bye for now.